It's good to be back in swing now with our evening service and the Baptist Catechism. It's been a little while longer for me than it has for you guys for being here since I was on vacation with the family. And then uh, we were dealing with uh, this weird summer flu that was going on. But y'all might remember that three weeks ago, we began a new section in the Catechism. Uh, Brother John taught that night. Uh, the section on the law of God is over now. And now we're in a section that's called Faith and Repentance. Now, think about this for just a moment, okay? It makes sense, doesn't it, that the law of God, a section on teaching about the law of God, would precede this section on faith and repentance. And why this section on faith and repentance wasn't included in the section concerning salvation and judgment, which preceded that long section through the catechism. So I'm trying to make you think, you know, about what we've already been through, and it's been over 50 weeks that we've been doing this. So odds are fair and high that you don't remember the order of these things. But the catechism is laid out in a systematic way. And so before we spent that long section on the law of God, we were dealt with two sections, one on salvation and then a short little section on judgment. I think it may be only two questions even. But I think that's intentional. It's on purpose. It's for a good reason that the catechism, the, the authors, the formers of it, built it out that way. Uh, the, the catechism and the order of the questions therein is set up to help us understand, and specifically what we're thinking now, to not be confused by the role of the law in the life of the Christian. There is what we would call the pedagogical use of the law, which we affirm and we see in the Word of God. Uh, the pedagogical use of the law is the work of the law to show us our sin. So think of the early chapter of the letter to the Romans, chapters 1 through 3, are classically recognized as being about guilt. So you could break down the book of Romans into three categories, guilt, grace, and gratitude. That doesn't mean that they're only that in those sections, but formally that's what the Apostle Paul was working in through that letter to the Romans. And so the first section is showing, showing guilt to show us our sin. Uh, or Galatians 3.24, you might think of that, which speaks of the law as our guardian or our schoolmaster that points us to our need for justification by and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, the, the law is meant to, to bring us low. It's meant to show us our wretchedness. It's meant to, to show us our depravity in the light of God's holiness and his righteousness. It's to show you the condemnation that you're under. But once it is that you're saved, the law doesn't relate to the Christian in that way any longer. Once, it is, once you are saved and you are born again, the law doesn't serve the function of pointing you to your sin to show your depravity for your need of justification because you already have justification. As the Apostle Paul says, you are no longer under the law, but you're under grace in Romans 6.14. It's a, it's a sad and damaging thing when pastors confuse the law and gospel, and it puts redeemed saints back, back under the law and causes them to feel and to think that their justification before Yahweh is contingent upon their own personal faithfulness or piety towards him. But for the Christian, the law of God serves as the standard that one may seek to follow because we know it is good and it's for our good and because we desire to see God glorified. It's what the Reformed call the third use of the law or the golden use of the law to show us what, what God himself is like. So we might be instructed in a way that a redeemed person should live. 
So think of, in other words, in like Romans 12 through 16. If you ever notice, the latter chapters of Romans is all about, you know, how it is they should live in the context of being a Christian. Or Ephesians 4 through 6, right? Ephesians 1 through 3 speaks about the, the wonders and the majesty of God in saving us and redeeming us. And then all of a sudden in chapter 4, there's these instructions on how you, how you should live, what you should do. So we seek to keep the law because we have been justified. Not because doing so makes us justified, and even not because doing so valids our, validates our justification. Right? That that's the more tricky one. We don't keep the law as a way to validate our justification either. And this is a very dangerous thing. Uh, to, to validate our justification based on our works, on our good deeds, based on our law keeping, rather than basing it on who Christ is and what he has done. You'll get yourself in trouble if you do that. And a lot of ministers end up talking in such a way that it lends to that mentality with the saints. But we should be guarded against that. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Um, Think about it. There are plenty, plenty of outwardly obedient people claiming to be Christian. But they're obedient because they think they are earning their way into heaven. And so... We seek to obey the law of God purely out of gratitude for what God has done in creating us, but even more, in light of his saving of us. It shows us, the third use of the law reminds us that the law shows us how to live in a way that pleases God. And so while the category of faith and repentance could have been addressed around the category of justification, or the justification of salvation, which came before the giving or the looking at the law in the, in the Baptist Catechism, it's good that we're visiting these aspects now of our salvation after looking at the law so that we can be reminded of two of the three functions of the law. Because we just spent, the, the section on the law in the Baptist Catechism is the longest section. I don't know exactly how many questions it is, but it's, it takes up the bulk of it. So those two or three functions of the law that we need to be reminded of, number one is that the law is used to lead us to see our need for Christ before we are saved. Again, that's the pedagogical use. And then also, Two, to help us to be clear that our keeping of the law isn't what saves us, but rather that faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. And so the catechism, that's the third use of the law. And so the catechism is helping us to have proper law and gospel distinctions and proper law and gospel categories. The second use of the law we've talked about before, it's to restrain evil in the world, generally speaking. Something, though, that is greatly needed in evangelicalism today is to properly distinct law and gospel. Not that they're enemies. They're, they're complementary, but they're different. They're, so they're substantially, substantially different. Law says do this. Gospel says it's been done for you. Now, and not all law is bad. Obviously, we're saying there is the law is good. We're supposed to keep it as Christians, but not thinking of it in the sense that it's what justifies us. So the question that we have for tonight and the questions that we actually have for the next two weeks, really, are, act, are all actually just elaborating on the answer that Brother John preached on three weeks ago. Uh, tonight's question and the next two questions are both mentor, mentioned in the answer that John spoke on, I think it was about three weeks ago. So let me remind you of that real quick. It's on your outline. It's question 90. And the question says, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And the answer it gave was to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So then, one of the aspects of escaping God's wrath 
and curse. Not, not hiding from it, right? Because that's not possible. We can't like tuck ourselves away into the corner of the world and hide from God's wrath in that, in that way. We escape it, namely through the first thing mentioned, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what our focus is on tonight. And the other two, which is uh, repentance unto life and then the diligent use of all the outward means, those will be addressed over the next two Sunday evenings. And even more, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, no one will be saved. Uh, Jesus said, said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But what, but what does that exactly mean? What is faith in Christ exactly? Well, the answer the catechism gives is straightforward enough, but we need to do some work defining what these terms mean and breaking down the specific terms in the answer. But the answer reads, and this is at the top of your outline if you have it, the answer the catechism gives is faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Okay, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. So first, we should consider then the nature of faith. What is actually faith? Uh, faith often means something different to different people. Uh, the context of how we use the term faith defines what is meant by it often. And that can end up being pretty confusing and unfortunate because of how central understanding what faith is for, for the Christian. So you'll hear someone say, use faith like this. And maybe let's think of it like in the context of sports. So let's say the Niners, they don't have a pretty good team. It looks like on paper, their roster is really lacking. They are injury riddled. Uh, they're inexperienced. They, they lack training and good leadership. I'm a Niner fan if, I, if I'm into football or whatever. So that's why we're staying in the Niners, right? But then you have your – it looks like from your standpoint, from anybody's standpoint who's looking at the team, it looks like they're going to have a dismal season. I'm not speaking about this year. I'm just saying theoretically. And so then your Raider fan friends or your Dallas Cowboy fan friends all start giving you a hard time about the upcoming season. Which, I mean, why do you have Raider fan friends or Dallas Cowboy fan friends anyways? I mean, who needs those kind of people? But, but what the Niner fan responds with is, well, you need to just have faith. Uh, you have faith. The Niners are going to pull it out. They're going to be, they're going to be good. And what that really means when somebody says something like that is, you know, perhaps God will work a miracle. Uh, he, he doesn't know what's going to happen. There's no certainty about the team. It's all relying upon the chance that the other teams are going to be even worse, or they're going to, the Niners might just be better on that given game day. Or let's say that there's a, there's a guy that a Christian girl really likes, and she's attracted to him because of the way that he looks. There's nothing wrong with that. That's totally normal. But this guy has some issues. It's pretty much common knowledge that he is a serial dater, that he cheats on his girlfriends, that he's mean to his sisters and to his mother, and he only comes to church when his parents force him because the parents are the sort of parents that don't want to quote you know force religion on their children and so the christian girl who's who's trying to be a faithful christian godly girl she believes that this guy will change for her she has faith that he'll be different for her and that this normal infamous pattern won't take place when they're together or the girl who who keeps giving who keeps getting cheated on she keeps giving the guy second chances because she says he's going to change she has faith that he's going to change and they, they, they both have faith that these guys will be different. 
But that's not really what faith is, not biblically speaking. And it could be it's more complicated. Other issues, other issues involved to that second scenario with the girl and the guy. But that's not faith. Those things, that's stupidity, really, when you're involved in something like that. And, and people sometimes think of faith like that within the church, but that's grossly wrong. That certainly is not what is meant by faith in the catechism. That's not the idea put forth by the word of God either. And unfortunately, the church has often thought of faith doctrinally wrong as well, within a couple of different ways. There's more ways than we could go over right now, just offering two ways in which the church has thought of faith from a doctrinal perspective in error. And these wrong ways, doctrinally speaking, are really the ways that the particular Baptists and the Presbyterians were looking to guard against in the forming of this catechism's Q&A. And both of these examples are sadly alive and well today in many churches, so let's consider them. Uh, the, the first error would be what the Reformed called fide implicita, or in other words, an implicit faith, sometimes called a blind faith. Uh, Richard Moeller calls it faith that is mere assent without certain knowledge. In other words, this is, this is the kind of faith that you would expect, you certainly expect to see being promoted over in Romanist churches. It's the, it's the sort of faith that, quote, accepts as true what the church believes without knowing the objective contents of the faith. So, for example, a church's tradition may advocate for something, but then that thing that they're advocating for has no basis in the word of God, but you accept it implicitly because it's the church's doctrine. That's not a true biblical faith. It's quite dangerous faith, actually. And many are led into deception by simply accepting traditions based on faith, which has no basis in the knowledge of what God's word actually says on the matter. And the second kind of example is a bit more difficult to understand, and it plagues modern Protestant churches, really. But the Reformed and Protestant Orthodox of a few hundred years ago sought to guard against this error. And that is number two on your outline, Fides Caritate formata, or in the English, faith informed by love. Faith informed by love. Now, this is a little bit more difficult, as I was saying. I mean, it doesn't even sound that bad, really, faith informed by love. And so we might think it's, it's a faith informed by God loving us, which, of course, God does love us. And so faith based on that sounds good. But this is the kind of error that John MacArthur even often gets into trouble with the reform for when he says something like this, and he says something like this recently as well. He says, I know I believe because I love the Lord. And so his error and what people who make the same kind of error are doing is they are defining faith based on the evidence of faith on themselves or on or something in themselves rather than outside themselves specifically on the person of Jesus Christ. So this faith that is informed by love is a faith that is animated or instructed by love and is, it's therefore, you know, active in producing good works. Good works are, of course, good, and good works do flow out of a true faith. But the impetus that this fides, or this faith formed out of love is that one's good works are joined to their faith in such a way that they imply a necessity of good works for justification. And that, that's where you've just lost the gospel at that point. That's why people get so worked up about John MacArthur when he says those types of things, because the gospel is at stake. 
And so what happens when you think things like that, you end up becoming a fruit inspector. And so you inspect yourself or you inspect other Christians for how much fruit do they have? Are they bearing good fruit? Are they bearing enough fruit? And the danger is, well, how much fruit does a Christian need to bear? And what kinds of fruit constitutes a true faith and on and on? But if you know what the catechism says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. And so if we're to think of the correct sort of faith here, a faith that amounts to faith in Jesus Christ, we should understand it as a saving faith. A faith that saves and justifies all by itself, apart from our own works. Works do not contribute to our justification, but when we are justified, works inevitably flow from us. But they never contribute to our justification. So faith in Jesus Christ then. It's not some unknown, mysterious thing here. It's not some blind or implicit thing. We need to reject the notion, quite outrightly, of a blind faith. That's mysticism sneaking into the church. Faith is actually something that we're to be sure of, a saving faith especially. I think of the word confidence even. I talked about this a few weeks back. But confide in the Latin, the word con means with. Fide, faith, confidence. You have your with confidence, with faith. It's not a blind, unknown thing. And neither is it something that is defined as evidence in us or something that hinges upon our actions or some sort of measurable proof in us, which is necessary for our justification. The reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, for example, they all spoke of saving faith in three categories. Muller affirms these same principles for the Protestant scholastics as well. And so a, a true saving faith, a, a fides propia, a personal faith, in other words, it's commonly expressed in three categories, two concerning the intellect and then one concerning our will. They're all focused on the person and work of Christ, though. So number one, your outline, it's knowledge. You know, one must know the basic information or the content, such as Christ's death and resurrection. And we understand that not just in our head, but with our being and our soul. There's a scent, a census. One must agree that the basic information is correct. In other words, he or she must not have only heard that Christ died and rose again, but they must believe that he did that. And then the third category is confidence or trust. And so one must have a personal trust in Christ and rest on the knowledge that the content to which he or she believes is sufficient to save. So those are not three kinds of faith, but three interwoven aspects of saving faith. Joel Beakey notes that in describing saving faith in this threefold manner, we must be careful to avoid a, bif a bifurcation of faith into saving and non-saving elements, as if saving faith consisted of historical faith in the knowledge and assent plus saving trust, which is confidence. What it is, it's all three of these elements present and active at once, all narrowed in on Christ. That, that is what constitutes a saving faith. In other words, saving faith, which is certainly what's in view here in the Catechism, is all centered on actually knowing the object of our faith, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done. That's why we read in the Catechism answer that faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It's the first part of the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It's not some unfounded hope. It's not implicit based on something without knowledge. It's not rooted in our apprehending of it. No, rather, it is all based on who Christ is and what he's done and He has what he has done. It's a, a fide salvifica, 
a saving faith. It's a saving grace, a grace that comes to us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It wouldn't be ours if it didn't come to us from, from God. It's a saving grace. So here the catechism cites Hebrews 10.39. It only cites a few verses. Hebrews 10.39 is the first one that the catechism puts forward. And it says it right there after that, that line. Hebrews 10.39 says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, the context here, this verse from the author to the letter of the Hebrews, is, it's a bit complex. It, it's based off of a mashup of Old Testament allusions from Isaiah 26, from Haggai 2 and Habakkuk 2, and then it's confirmed in the New Testament in Romans 1 and Galatians 3. But the point that he's making is, is really quite simple, is that those with faith in Christ Jesus have a true saving faith. So as it is, they don't shrink back and they don't fall away and become destroyed. That was a feature of the Old Covenant, unfortunately, right? In, in Israel, many of them shrank back from God. Many of them departed from God. They didn't have many in the Old Covenant, didn't have a true saving faith. They were in a covenant with God, but not a, a covenant that was for eternal salvation. Some of them were in a covenant of God's eternal salvation, the same covenant we are, but it was veiled, it was hidden, it wasn't as clearly revealed as it was in the New Testament. When we see the veil being torn and the temple being um, destroyed in the New Testament time period. And so the point is, is very simple, is that for now in the New Covenant, those who have saving faith, those who, again, are part of the New Covenant, they won't shrink back. They will be preserved until the end, preserved all the way unto glory, in other words. Uh, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, all of that. The golden chain of Romans 8, 29 through 30 is what it means to have salvation applied to us by God. From start to finish, the beginning of our salvation to the very end of our salvation, it is all of God. And so this is a, a grace, brothers and sisters, a saving grace, not a common display of God's providence. Those things which we understand as the kindness of God, which he bestows upon the saved and the unsaved, the elect and the reprobate. But this is a grace which is unique towards the elect, this faith that is given. And it's saving, a saving grace, because it's not what we earned or deserved. It's, it's grace. None of us deserves to see and to know the truth as it is in Christ. The second London Baptist Confession, chapter 14, 1, puts it like this. It says, The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the word. So by the preaching of the word is what they mean there. By the same ministry and the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened. Now, you heard me there say what the confession says and how it associates saving the saving grace of faith with the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word and the sacraments. Well, the catechism is going to have teaching on them beginning with question 93 to 95. So not next week, or, but the week after that is when we're going to start getting to those topics that are associated with the very thing, the topic we're talking about tonight, this saving grace of faith. 
Um, so from there, at that point, the focus of the, of the catechism will be on the sacraments or the ordinances, whatever it is you want to call them, until we get to the Lord's Prayer. But the point is that all these things are associated with faith that saves, the means of grace, prayer, preaching, the, the, the table, baptism. They're all associated with the saving faith. Now, I want to, um, I want to close the, this section by reading Article 3 in Chapter 14 of the Second London Baptist Confession. Because one thing I want us to be clear on about the saving grace, which is faith in Jesus Christ, is that it's not about us. One might be said to have more faith than another person. One may have a faith that is stronger than another. But the point here is that it's this saving grace that is faith in Jesus Christ is that it's from God. And so no matter the capacity that you have of it, it is saving. And so chapter, Article 3 in the London Baptist Confession, chapter 14 says this, This faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong. Yet, even in its weakest form, it is different in kind or nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. It matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so we, we can't, and I would say amen to that, the, the Faith that is a saving grace, which is faith in Jesus Christ. It's something that God gives to us, and it will accomplish its end in our life. And that is the salvation of the elect. And we also can't think of the nature of saving faith, which is a saving grace, apart from the object of saving faith. So that's the second category I wanted to speak to. The reason that this faith can and does exist at different capacities between different believers is because the saving power of faith lies not in the, in the person itself who has the faith, but in the object of the faith. The object of saving faith consists of the eternal, invisible God as he reveals himself in his word through the mediator, Jesus Christ. In other words, the person of the Son of God. Jesus is the object of our faith. Now, none of us can see the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him in his word, certainly. Uh, we see him when he is preached faithfully, but we don't see him with our physical eyes. We see him with the eyes of faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. And so by faith, people with faith, they, they live as seeing him who is invisible which is what all of Hebrews 11 is about, right? Where it goes on to explain this, this great crowd of, of witnesses and all these acts of faith. They are people who, who live as seeing him who is invisible. Uh, we end up pursuing the things that are pleasing and glorifying to him because we know him, because we have believed in him, because our faith is in him, in him being Christ. Augustine said, we believe in order that we may know. We do not know in order that we may believe. For what we shall yet know, neither eye hath seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered the heart of man. For what is faith but believing what you see not? And so if we understand the object of our faith, then we need to look to the word of God for instruction in this regard. And the catechism breaks down it into two categories for us. We receive, or three categories, I guess. We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. So first 
saving faith in, in Christ involves receiving him. Obviously, uh, what is the great problem in the world today? That, it's that they have not received Christ, but they are in fact presently rejecting him. People are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God, we read in John 3. And so faith in Jesus Christ means that we receive him. The Catechism cites John 1.12. Let's turn there. You might remember this, this passage. This is one of those texts that I, I struggle with how anyone could read and then not come away from this and concede that Calvinism is the gospel, as, as Spurgeon said. We're going to read verse 13, too. The Catechism only cites verse 12. Verse 12 in John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who were, in other words, who were born of God. <clears throat> so we receive Christ because we've been born of God. It's not our own doing. It's not our own will. Again, a saving faith is one that takes our eyes off of ourselves and it puts it on God. And so we are born of God and we believe in his name. The, the word name here refers to God's glory in Christ as it's revealed in Christ's words and works. Christ Jesus is the living word and he reveals God. He's the light of God's glory as verse 9 says in John 1. So then saving faith is not about accepting Christ as if you're some sort of arbitrator of what is acceptable or not. We're not accepting him as a friend or some helper, but we receive him as the glorious Lord, full of grace and truth, as we read in John 1.14. Or think of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints in Colossae, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Paul is dealing here with this point about receiving Christ and what the world wants to offer us instead of Christ or in place of Christ. And so in verse 6 in Colossians 2, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. But think of what he's saying to us here. How did we receive Christ the Lord? It is something that we were taught. Something that both roots us and builds us up. Receiving Christ implies that we receive Christ as he is given to us in his word then, and not a human wisdom. Colossians 2.8 begins that well-known uh, verse about not being taken captive by empty deceit and philosophy and human wisdom. Well, receiving Christ is contrasted to those things. And then the apostle explains the importance of receiving Christ as he's revealed in his word in Colossians 2, 9 through 10. Then he, because he speaks of this of Christ. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so we receive Christ by faith and we continue to walk in him by faith through a heartfelt conviction that he is the all-sufficient Lord, that he is God, true God. He is the only Savior that we're to depend upon. We don't depend even upon our good works to, to help us think that we're saved. We just look to Christ. And of course, 
There are other ways in which we could consider receiving Christ. The Bible paints a few images of our union with him in, in vivid ways so that we would remember them and, and meditate upon them and think upon them. Um, think about our union with Christ in John 6, where receiving Christ is compared to eating bread, eating his flesh. Or in John 7, it's compared to drinking water. Or in Romans 13, receiving Christ is compared to putting clothing on. We're told to put on Christ, even. William Perkins compares faith to the empty hand of a beggar. And so faith is a hand by which we take hold of Christ. And we take hold of him as God's greatest gift to us. We receive him in that way. Not accept, we receive. Because God has given to us and God is much greater than us. <laughs> Nobody's saying no to God. But we also note that saving faith also rests in Christ. We don't receive Christ as a saving grace, and then all of a sudden we have to maintain that saving grace ourselves. That's important. That, that's where a lot of people get snagged on, is they, they feel that they've received Christ, but then they look to their own good works to maintain their right relationship, relationship with God. And that's not what it's about. We always look to Christ. We rest in him alone for salvation, which is the second thing that the catechism cites. So the catechism looks to Isaiah 26.3 here. You might remember Isaiah 26.3. It's a, it's a well-known verse, I believe. It says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So this is God talking about what he does for people. He says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, actually in that verse, the two different kinds of categories of faith that i mentioned earlier are present remember there's two different there was three kinds there was knowledge assent and confidence or trust but there those are two kinds intellect and will so isaiah says that those that in, in this verse that whole concept of a true saving faith is caught up here in this one little verse and he says so he says that those with faith are kept in perfect peace no matter what is going on because saving faith grants us knowledge of Christ and trust in Christ. He says that there the mind is stayed on him, knowledge of Christ, because he trusts in you. Again, there's that confidence that we have in Christ that enables us to rest, to be at perfect peace. Right? If, if We can't have perfect peace if we're not at rest. We're, we're frantic if we're not at rest. Right? We're trying to do this, do that. I, I have to... and. I'm going to say this right now, which is going to be almost silly sounding, but like I have to go to church. You know, I have to be at the morning service and evening service. And I think every person should be at the morning service and the evening service every week. If not here, then another church, somewhere too, if you're traveling or something like that. But we don't think like that because we think that's what makes us saved. We're privileged to do that. We want to do that because of who God is and what he's done. So we can rest in him, knowing that when we come to gather to worship, that's where we're filled. That's where we're fed. Further, we might think of those texts that speak of us being built on Christ and drawing our, force, our, our, our source of strength from him when we think about what it means to rest in him. So, so Christ is our foundation, as 1 Corinthians 3.11 says. We're resting on him as the foundation. We're not the foundation of our faith, but Christ is. First Family Church is not the foundation of your faith. Christ is. The Pope is no one's foundation of the faith. Christ is the only foundation of faith. Christ is the cornerstone, holding the whole structure together. 
building us into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2 tells us. No cornerstone of Christ, well, then no holy temple. And lastly, as John describes him, he is the vine, and we are the branches who abide in him, who rest in him. Abiding isn't this striving that you do. Abiding is a simple rest in Christ, looking to Christ as the sustainer and the originator of your faith. Believers are those who lean on Christ, the mighty God who alone can support us in all of our needs, even through times of personal darkness, which there are many testimonies of. And lastly, we must receive Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Not the Mormon Christ then, not the Islamic Christ, but the Christ who is offered to us in the gospel. And the gospel offers to us Christ in all of his fullness, in his threefold offices. We had individual catechism questions a while back on these, so I won't go into a bunch of detail here. But faith receives Christ in his three offices. First, as the divine prophet to teach us his authoritative word. And we, apart from faith, are ignorant of his word. And so we need him as the prophet. We, we understand what scripture is intending to say in the person of Christ. He's the revealer of God's word. We, 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 by faith, receive Christ as the divine priest who is able to forgive, to give us forgiveness and provide reconciliation with God by his substitutionary sacrifice in our place. We, we stood guilty, but Christ, as our divine priest, rescues us, and then he continues forever to make intercession for us. He's not like the priest in the Old Covenant who perished and then another one had to take their place. Christ lives to make intercession for us continually, we read in Hebrews 7. And then the lastly, the third office, so we have prophet, priest. We, we, by faith, receive Christ as the divine king because we were weak and helpless. And Christ, as the king, rescues us from sin and Satan, and he rules us by his spirit through his word. Friends, we receive the whole Christ. None of this... I'll take him as Savior, but not as Lord stuff. It is Christ and all of his fullness that is offered to us in the gospel. To have a, to really, to have a partial Christ could only then mean that we have an incomplete salvation, which is most certainly sure damnation. We receive Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. The Catechism cites a couple of passages on what it means to take Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. They communicate to us the, the thrust of what is meant by receiving Christ is offered in the gospel. So Philippians 3.9 and Galatians 2.16, I'll just read these for you. Philippians 3.9 says, And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in the final analysis, as R.C. Sproul says, what, what we need to understand is that faith in Christ Jesus means that the basis of our salvation is solely based upon the righteousness of Christ. That's it. If you walk away with nothing from tonight, hope I hope that you understand at least that faith in Christ Jesus means that the basis of our salvation is based solely upon the righteousness of Christ. He is the object of our faith. It is by his life 
the elements of it, the reality that he is true man and true God, and making him the only one that is fit to save us. I wanted to talk about hypostatic union tonight. I didn't think I would have time to get into that. It's important in this concept, though, in this, in this um, dogma, though. And that this God-man, Christ Jesus, that he lived a truly righteous and holy life so that his righteous life could be attributed to us through the faith that he gives to us. Jesus' active obedience, his faithfulness to keep the law of God, his passive obedience, his faithfulness to take the penalty our sin demanded, form the basis by which we are justified. If we only receive from Christ the benefit of his death on the cross for us, then none of us would be saved. Or we'd be saved, and then like in the very next moment, we'd lose that salvation if it depended upon us to keep it. Because none of us are, are perfect, uh, even after receiving that benefit of Jesus' death on the cross. But thanks be to God that the faith he gives us also includes with it the righteousness of Christ, so that our faith, that saving grace, is then totally and fully upon Christ. We are accredited with Christ's righteousness. Not it's not infused into us, and then we have to keep it, but it's accredited to us so that from a legal declaration standpoint, God looks at Tanya, he looks at Steve, he looks at me, and he says, you are justified because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has done. And I have a little bit of time, so I wasn't gonna do any application. Well, well, let me say this too. Because of that, <laughs> We can confess with the apostles that we are justified not by a righteousness of our own, not by a righteousness that comes from the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So now I have a couple minutes. Let me just, one point of application. Because when we understand that our, that faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, and that's what uh, caused us to escape from God's wrath, it lends itself to a biblical assurance. I've had this conversation too many times to, to recount. Just most recently, this past Friday, uh, Brother John Wu was there and Ivan, and we were talking with a, with a guy, a very nice guy. He was, uh, you know, claimed to be a Christian, and he had some understanding of the faith, of doctrine, of what it means to be a Christian and whatnot. And then the question was put to him, you know, well, will you go to heaven? Will, will God let you into heaven? And he wasn't able to know. He said, I don't know, his answer was, I hope that I'll go to heaven. And he's trying to be humble in that, I think. And there is a measure of humility that is, of course, good. But it's not actual real humility when someone says that if they're actually trusting in Christ. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Because the only, the reason that we can have confidence that we'll go to heaven is because our faith is resting in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We're not dependent upon ourselves at all. We were looking to Christ and what he's done. And so when a person who is a, you, everybody's a Christian, should have that true confidence. But what, when a person says, I, I don't know, well, what they're saying, and maybe not intentionally, is they're, they're saying, well, I don't know if Christ's sacrifice was enough, if Christ's holy life was enough. But the reality, friends, what the catechism is trying to teach us tonight is that it, in fact, is. We are justified. We are saved because of the saving grace that is faith in Jesus Christ, because we receive him and we rest in him. And so we can have a true and real assurance. And then it's just up to us as Christians and pastors and stuff to not mess that up for people. But that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. Let's pray really quick and then we'll have um, time for questions, comments, if you guys have any. 
But our Father in heaven, we do thank you for time to consider what the Catechism says tonight. It's good to be back into the pattern of our evening service, Lord, and we're grateful for the extra time that we get to have together thinking about what your word says. We do pray, Lord God, that you would conform us all the more to Christ and that you would increase our faith. We know the faith that we have is enough because it is the faith that you have given to us and it is a justifying and saving faith. But we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to become stronger, that we might glorify you all the more and turn from every sort of wickedness for your glory's sake. And we're so grateful for the salvation that we have in Christ and the confidence that it lends to us, Lord. I'm so glad to know that I don't, every time I sin, my the, the, the scales are not thrown out of balance because those scales are met perfectly by Christ. So to you be all glory, praise, and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys. Well, anything I could try to answer or try to clear up for you? Doesn't really. I really liked your sermon, John. When it really, but it's it's interesting because that sermon that you had contains the topics for now tonight and then the next two weeks as well too. And then after that, it's going to get into baptism and how how does the the preached word become effectual into salvation so these are foundational things that we're getting to talk about here that so many christians tend to neglect unfortunately you know just the food inspector part i mean leading the child off of christ pretty quick and then take the parables give us the measure some, everyone's food is different, right? It's like some food, you know, it's not so much the standard, it's the result, right? Yeah. So a believer's going to have some food, but if we start going and measuring it, like how much, then I like what you said, you said how much is enough, then you start going back into your prayer, like tipping the scales, like as long as, it, as, long as I do enough to tip that scale, <coughs> then I'll make it. And then we got to be careful not to be the kind of food inspectors who are like, I saw them do this, this this week, but I haven't seen them do this for another three months. It's like, you know, our eyes should be on Jesus now. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, it's like if the Lord is at work in someone, there's going to be a change when they're preaching to Christ, right? For sure, absolutely. And you'll be remorseful over your sin, you know? that That's part of good fruit, is that you're repenting over your sin. You have your, your contrite over your sin. We still, we're still going to sin. There's a there's an album this rapper named Flame. He's a Lutheran now, and so like his last three albums have all been about his Lutheran beliefs. And there is like lyrically, I still you know, he's talented or whatever. But doctrinally, you know, we go a different direction now. But one of the things he said on his first one, and he came from a Reformed Calvinistic background, is that that aspect of fruit inspecting really, you know, made him made him think that you know basically people are the arbitrators of their own salvation the things that they do and it's unfortunate because that's not it's not integral to reform theology what it is it's it's just calvinistic theology that's detached from covenant theology and confessionalism that has led to that it's probably that kind of john macarthur way of viewing things sometimes and i love john macarthur too but i i think you know he does some of the things he says lends itself to that but Generate people, the natural flow of being generous is going to provide a repentance, right? Mm-hmm. Life of growth, but the repentance that leads to life, like what John the Baptist once said, 
want you to think of the rest as therefore their feelings and it's worthy to fight for Christ. If you repent and under life, it's gonna come forth from that, right? And I think he sometimes conflates the you know, the regenerate person unto you know, that initial repentance that yeah. when you first come Similar, right? Because it's that that's that impetus of love, you know, with that feeling, the impetus of a feeling that lends to your assurance, which is really just it's just bad because Christ is so much greater than us. So why not look to Christ? Some Puritan, I'm sure it's a Puritan. I don't know which one I'm having now. But he said, for every look you took, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's wise counsel. Talking about how we love God supremely, and I just was like, "Wow!" Like, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit, but it contrasted in my mind like when Sproul gave this breakdown when he said, "You know, do you know you're saved?" He said, "Yes." Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And he was like, "Yes, I love Him." He's like, "Do you love Him perfectly?" He's like, "No, no, I certainly don't love Him perfectly." Do you love Him like you ought to love Him? He's like, "No, I don't love Him. I ought to love Him." He said, "But do you love Him at all?" Yes, I have affection for Christ. And he you know, said we love him because he first loved us. But there was no this, I love God supremely. Yeah. It's like that, to me, is, it's just man-centered to say, I know I'm saved because I love God. It doesn't even sound like something would come from John. You know? yeah. We should, of course, if we are saved, we love God. Yes. I mean, that's we love him because he first loved us, right? But the danger is when you is when you maybe and it's probably unconsciously happens so you when you know well not when I'm you safe because I love God maybe in part but it's when you it's when you tie it into your justification and so if that's missing in a little bit then you're then there's this doubt then there's a thread that could become unraveled it's tricky because the great commandment is to love the Lord your God how supremely with all your heart mind soul and strength so that's something you strive for well but your confidence in salvation is not in your yeah. ability to do that yeah. you can only do it because christ first loved you yeah. and that's actually i'm glad you said that actually because the great commandment is law right it's what we're supposed to do and again not all doing things is not bad we're supposed to do things but that's not gospel right and faith in jesus christ is gospel because it's what he's done for us we look to that we're supposed to do things as christians certainly we're supposed to do the Great Commission. If we're not, we're failing to do what's right. But thankfully, our salvation isn't dependent upon that. <laughs> Again, we look back to Christ. Well, the beauty is, you know, John doesn't mean that either. It's just yeah. poor articulation. I mean, he doesn't... It, I know he believes it is finished, not it is almost finished when I look up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else? Very good. Well, I could get some water then because my mouth is all dry. I can't even pronounce words right.